Well, uh, I want you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. And while you're turning there, up on the screen, you're going to see a picture of my brother, my brother Jim. And uh, when he, this is when he was in his 20s. He was a competitive rower. And this is a picture that I took of him uh, working out on the Potomac River uh, down uh, near Georgetown. My brother got so good at rowing that he even tried out for the national rowing team. And he had a good chance of making it. He, in fact, almost made the team. And this is a pretty elite level to achieve as a rower. But how did he get that good? How in the world did he do that? Well, first, by his desire to be good. He loved rowing. But he was good at rowing not only because of what he did on the water, but he was good at it because of the disciplines that he learned and followed off of the water, all born out of this, this passion for rowing uh, that he had. Now, rowing is a sport that demands full participation, and I'm not kidding, full participation of nearly every muscle in your body. It is a grueling sport. And so my brother uh, would spend hours and hours every day working out, He'd be lifting weights and going for long runs, and, and he would uh, run stairs uh, like a maniac. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know how long his sets were, but people sort of passing by would stop and, and watch because they were so amazed as, at what he was doing. I mean, it was, it was very grueling work. And, and what he was doing was he was preparing himself mentally and physically for the brutal reality that every uh, race is out on the water when you're pulling on those oars for 2,000 meters or whatever length the race is. It is an absolutely grueling sport. And so to get that good, my brother also studied a lot. He studied the physics of rowing, the minute techniques of making his boat go faster in the water. He, He would endlessly practice those techniques. He read books, he watched other rowers, and most importantly, he sought out experienced rowers to learn from. You see, rowing is a culmination of not only incredible strength and stamina and mental fitness, but it's also the culmination of knowledge and the practical application of that knowledge. You see, it's not good enough uh, just to be strong. It's not good enough just to want to be a good rower, no matter how fit you are. You have to know how to row, and then apply that knowledge so that you do row well. The key ingredients to my brother's success as a rower were his love for it and his willingness to learn. You see, if he was too proud to be teachable, uh, he wouldn't have have done so well. And part of that that learning process was even to hear harsh critiques from his mentors as they studied his style and technique. But he had to be willing to hear those and receive those critiques. My, My brother's experience to me is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. My brother loved rowing, so he worked hard and he disciplined himself to become an excellent oarsman. Likewise, if we love and fear the Lord, we naturally ought to desire to live holy lives. That should be our passion 
every single day, all day long, just as rowing was for my brother during that time. As James, the brother of Jesus, says famously, faith without works is dead. In other words, the symptom of true faith in Christ is that we do what Christ commands. So my brother uh, needed to learn rowing and not just learn about it, but to actually do it. Likewise, we need to learn what it means to be a follower of Christ and then actually do it. Now we know that living completely for Christ takes a great deal of hard work, don't we? Anybody who's been a Christian for more than a day understands this. But if we fear God, if we fear God, we do work hard in order to order our lives after Christ's example. It's worth all the hard work, isn't it? There's a great reward in it. But this takes training and learning, long hours of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2. So we prayerfully pour over the pages of Scripture to learn about God and learn about who He calls us to be so that when we get out on the water, as it were, during the race that we are in, we emulate Christ instead of the world. And so this is what our passage is about today. We've got to be teachable in the ways of God, even and most especially in the areas of our lives which we're pretty reluctant to submit to God. And I believe that almost every single one of us uh, has an issue like that. And so this means that we need to hear what God is saying and then do what he says. My brother loved rowing, so he learned to become excellent at it by doing all of the things that every good rower must learn. Likewise, we love God, and to become faithful followers of Christ, we've got to learn to do the things that every follower of Christ must also learn. It's only logical. Now, our passage today in Proverbs 15 comes at the end of a chapter that's full of instruction. It's also packed with references to hearing, to communicating, to learning, and the kind of heart that produces that learning and communication, and even our responses to what we hear, depending on whether we fear the Lord. The clear call of chapter 15 is to hear. That is, not only must, we, must our eardrums vibrate with sound waves as God speaks, but we need to ingest what he says to us. Hearing means that we also make the effort to understand and then do what God says. Now, I've chosen to emphasize these last four verses of chapter 15 simply because they are essentially a simple outline of the lessons that we learn in the chapter as a whole. And so what I want to do first is something a little unusual. I want to read the entire chapter for us because I think it's important for us to get the flavor of it and to see the big picture that it paints because that'll help us to realize the importance of hearing and learning and doing what God says. And this means that we embrace godly wisdom and instruction for ourselves. And so as chapter 15 comes to a close, Solomon is going to essentially summarize in the four verses we're going to focus on three important lessons for us. These lessons that we find throughout the rest of the chapter. And these lessons will be, again, the focus of our meditation today. The first lesson is that hearing God causes us to do godliness. 
Not just appreciate godliness, not just agree with godliness, but to do godliness. Hearing God in our second lesson also means to be teachable even when it's hard, even when we receive reproof from a brother or sister or from Scripture itself. And then the third lesson is that we hear God because we fear God. The reason that we hear God is because we fear God, and that's in verse 33. And so, allow me to read for us uh, Proverbs 15. You can follow along in your Bibles uh, with me. And, uh, and so, let's listen for these three lessons as we, as we go through this chapter together. Beginning in verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure. But trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Who hates, whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon, these are the places of the dead, lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than, a, than great treasure and trouble with... Let me try that verse again. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly uh, is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. 
Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And then here uh, is the passage that we're going to focus on today, beginning in verse 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. Hearing God causes us to do godliness. Verse 30 says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. Well, here's a pretty good paraphrase of that verse. The countenance of a righteous person displays an inner joy that others can be affected by. Good news renews strength, whether it's your own strength or somebody else's strength. And so the idea behind this is that somebody who fears God is not only blessed with joy, but that joy turns into a blessing for others, not only in his words, but in his countenance and his actions. And so our words and our actions become laced with the goodness of God and the joy that he brings us. No matter what we're talking about, no matter what circumstance we, we find ourselves in. And so we might, we might uh, display the joy of the Lord in a kind word to a cashier when the day isn't going well for them. Or uh, we might uh, be a blessing to a brother or sister as we point out their need for repentance. We, we might be a blessing to others because our joy of the Lord causes us to take care of other people. This is exactly what we've done with Anna East and Karina in their time of need after the storm a couple weeks ago. This, this can translate into our going down to the shelter to provide dinner for the people there and to sit with them and to fellowship with them and to get to know them and minister to them with our love of the Lord. And so because of our faith, we become bearers of good news for a world that's divided and and evil and paralyzed with fears. And so, brothers and sisters, this means that godliness isn't, isn't just some sort of concept, but it's a call to be heeded and carried out. It's something that we do. When we heed that call, we become reflections of who Christ is. And who is Christ? Well, Hebrews 1.3 describes Christ this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, what this is saying here is that Christ is literally the radiance of God's glory. We can't claim that, but we become images, reflections of that glory as we learn to imitate Christ in our lives so that when people look at us, they see him. And everything about us becomes a reflection of, of who God is, His holiness, His perfect character, His love for people. Even, and even in the things that we do, it's not just the things that we say, but it's in our actions as well. 
And so that's our first lesson, that hearing God causes us to do godliness. Our second lesson is that hearing God means to be teachable even when it's hard. And we see this in verses 31 and 32. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. And so just as my brother listened intently to his mentors in the books that he read, and he embraced what, he, he, what they taught him, he, he learned those lessons, and those lessons that he learned actually showed up in the boat uh, during the race. That all meant that he was teachable, and likewise, we all need to be teachable in the things of God. But sometimes it's just not easy, is it? We all know this. My brother's mentors had to reprove him at times, tell him what he was doing wrong. You see, that's what reproof is. It's a correction of, of something that's wrong. It's a rebuke. And so when my brother heard that criticism, he had two choices he could make. He could ignore that reproof, or he could receive it. And he received it because he wanted to be a better rower. And that meant that he was teachable. And that also meant that he was going to row faster and be more competitive. Well, likewise, we need to be teachable in our walk with the Lord, even when we hear things that are not easy to hear. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to know about God. It's not enough even to believe that God is right if we don't prove our agreement by obeying him. This is a constant theme of Scripture. Do you love me? Then do what I say. A wise person will obey God. A wise person will also love God's commands. This is the clear picture that Proverbs as a whole paints for us over and over and over again. This, uh, David in Psalm 1 agrees with this. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so we love God's commands. We love God's commands because we know that whatever God requires and expects of us is good for us. And so that's what gives birth to our obedience. It's not him pointing a finger at us and condemning us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God does have to tell us his standard of holiness. He has to tell us uh, who he is so that we can be like him. Well, let me ask you a question. How often do we nod our heads here on a Sunday morning and then go home and do the opposite of what we heard on Sunday afternoon? How often does that happen? That's something that plagues all of us at times. So don't feel like you're the only one. Now, most of us get the big picture of our salvation. We deserve the eternal wrath of God because of our sins. But God sent his son in our place to bear that wrath. But that doesn't mean that our sins don't now offend God. It's easy for us to become numb to the reality of how horrible to God our continued sins are, even the so-called little ones that we tend to hang on to. Paul declares in Romans 6 that we are called to walk in newness of life, 
Newness of life means that we have repented of not only the big sins in our lives, but those little ones. To repent doesn't mean only to be sorry for our sin, but to actually turn away from sin and turn toward God. And we do that by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so here's what Paul says in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. This is a, a very blunt statement. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Kill it. Get rid of it. Because it does you no good. In fact, it does you a lot of harm. And I don't want my children to be harmed. That's what God is saying to us. And so we put to death what is earthly in us. And then he has a list here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, these are all things that have to do with sexual sins. And so in verse 6, Paul says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And here's another list. And the list goes on to other areas of our lives that may start to sound really convicting. Now you must put them all away. Anger wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I think we're all guilty of all of the above at times, but for some of us, those things are habitual sins that we truly need to address in our lives. Do you think that for one moment that your anger is going to glorify God? Do you think that for one moment that saying that word when you're upset is going to glorify God? It won't. Our sin and our ugliness never brings glory to God. Our obedience does. Our love for Him does. The, the, the behavior and the actions and the attitudes of our hearts that have been changed by God is what brings glory to Him. And so in verse 9, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so what all of this means is that every single day, we should have the same kind of passion that my brother had for rowing, but this passion should be for following hard after Jesus Christ as we learn to put on the new self. Our sins, even those small ones, even those in that list that we just read from Paul, even those should bother us tremendously as followers of Jesus Christ. And I believe sometimes that we have lost that dismay over our sins. You see, if we fear and love the Lord, all of our sins, as the, the Holy Spirit brings them to mind, are going to trouble us deeply. And we're going to seek out God and bow our heads in true repentance. In fact, if we don't fear God to the point of obedience, this is what verse 32 says about us in our passage in Proverbs 15. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. Those are strong words, aren't they? Well, the Hebrew word for ignore means to let go, to let loose, to unbind. 
And so to ignore instruction implies a willing and intentional ignorance, a letting go of the truth that is right there before you. And so we choose to ignore it. And so when we sin as believers, as we most assuredly do, we are making a willing choice to let go of the things of God. We are making a willing choice to ignore God. And then we end up doing the very things that Scriptures say are bad for us. And according to verse 32, the explanation for that is that we despise ourselves. We despise ourselves. Why else would we do exactly what we know is harmful to us because we've learned it in Scripture. We need to apply that knowledge to our lives. But as God's people, we're called to always do what is best for us, aren't we? And praise be to God, He's not kept those things a secret, has He? He's revealed His will for us in His Word. God has not required anything of us that's impossible to do because he also gave us the Holy Spirit to understand his word and to empower us to live in holiness. And so as believers, we have no excuse. The unbeliever doesn't know God. The unbeliever doesn't understand the things of God. But if we claim Jesus Christ, then we claim to understand the things of God and we are called to obey. Now, none of this, of course, it, it, it might sound like I'm saying that this is really easy. But, of course, it isn't easy, is it? Because we're at war with our sinful nature, aren't we? None of what uh, God expects of us is easy because our sinful natures are constantly wanting to take the forefront, to take the front row seat in our lives. But this difficult but rewarding life of living in obedience and for the glory of God is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, there's nothing on this planet that comes anywhere near to the worth of knowing Christ. So why in the world would I go after earthly pleasures? Why in the world would I satisfy myself with something that is filthy? No, the only thing worth knowing in this world is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul goes on. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. It's not easy, you see. It's not easy to follow hard after Christ. So he suffered the loss of all things and he even counts them as rubbish compared uh, to knowing Christ. He says in, he, he counts them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Knowing Christ doesn't mean our lives will be all hunky-dory and pleasant and, and good and we'll have plenty of money and all those kinds of things. It doesn't mean that. It means that we share in his sufferings and we become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own. There's the hard work. 
of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's the reason that we press on. That's the reason that we, we work hard. It's because Christ has made us his own. That ought to give us a passion for Jesus Christ, a passion to live for him in every possible way that we can. And so Paul, in verse 13, says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. It takes hard work. It takes training. It takes even pain. In other words, if we claim to love Christ, then we ought to live like we love him. And just as it took my brother determination to achieve his goal of being an elite rower, it takes determination and sacrifice and even pain on our part to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And to be faithful means that we've got to be teachable. We've got to learn to be able to learn uh, to be who God calls us to be. We've got to be teachable. When we hear God's word preached from this pulpit every Sunday, we must submit ourselves to the will of God. We must submit ourselves to the will of God when we open our Bibles and read his word. We must embrace God's truth and then live it in every possible way that we can. That's what it means to live in newness of life. It means to strive to learn to become a people that is set apart, as Peter describes in his first letter. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, not part of your conduct, not a majority of your conduct, but in all of it. That is our goal. And it's our goal because it is written, as Peter writes, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then the first three verses of chapter 2, Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, not some of it, but all of it. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. We should yearn for the things of God because everything about God nourishes our souls and causes us to grow to maturity in Jesus Christ. And so we, we long for that spiritual milk, that pure spiritual milk, if indeed, Peter says in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If we love the Lord and we fear him, and we know him, then that is going to be our passion. That is going to be what we long for, is to grow to maturity in Jesus Christ. 
And then finally, in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter 2, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And therefore, Paul agrees as he commands us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And that gives us the framework to examine ourselves. Whatever is good and acceptable and perfect in God's eyes is what we hang on to, and whatever is not is what we put to death. This is wisdom, isn't it? Hearing God calls us to godliness. That was our first lesson. Hearing God means to be teachable even when there's rebuke, even when it's hard, even when we're being corrected. And so why do we hear God in the first place? And this is our third lesson. We hear God because we fear God in verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Now, if my brother had not held the opinions of his rowing mentors in high regard, uh, he would not have listened to their instruction. Now, that would not have meant that those mentors, potential mentors, uh, were not qualified to instruct him. It would just mean that my brother didn't recognize their qualifications. And likewise, it's only when we fear God that we realize that he holds absolute authority over us. Now, we can pretend that he doesn't, but he still does. Our opinion about the matter doesn't matter. He is the one who holds authority over our lives. We just need to recognize that and therefore live accordingly. This is when we're able to fully realize the value of his instruction, namely that even when God rebukes us, he's giving us life, as verse 31 points out. The Westminster Shorter Catechism correctly declares that the purpose of our lives is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God teaches us how to do that in his word, namely, as Proverbs puts it, by learning wisdom that's rooted in the fear of God. If we're not bowing, brothers and sisters, we're rebelling. That's a truth that we need to to really let sink in. You see, we are the inferior and God is the superior one. That's why we bow and that's why we listen to him. That's why we hear what he says, and apply it to our lives. And we do so in humility and reverential fear. We hear God because we fear God. We strive to submit to his will in every cell of our being, with every word that we speak, and even in our silences, and in our attitude, and our behavior, even those who we disagree with, even those who are enemies of God. We heard in our scripture reading from James that we are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's a great summary of Proverbs 15 and our passage that we're looking at today. But 
how do you suppose the first hearers of James' letter reacted to his reproof that we find in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1? I'm sure some of them scoffed. We, uh, Pastor John and I have had a lot of experience, and some of the elders too, with people uh, who have completely rejected uh, the gospel for themselves. There's some part of it that they don't like, and they've walked away. They've continued on in their sin. That's what a scoffer looks like. But, but some, and I hope like yourselves, have truly feared God. And you've, you've bowed before him in humility to do the hard work that you need to do to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so as I read this, this rebuke of James, I want us all to consider whether this is for us today. There are parts of this that might be a challenge to us, that might be a place of conviction. And the question is, is whether you find yourself in rebellion to what you hear or whether you are in agreement, and agreement to the point of being willing to actually live accordingly. And so here's what James says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and, you can, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. In other words, you people are being unfaithful to God. And he goes on, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, this is just James kind of paraphrasing uh, the whole scope of the Bible where, where God is a jealous God who doesn't tolerate opposing it. And then in verse 6, James says, but he gives more grace. You see, even though he's a jealous God, he is a God of grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Those who are willing to bow before him in fear and humility. Those who are willing to allow themselves to be changed by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and to live accordingly. And so in verse 7, James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil, you see. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's just pure logic, isn't it? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. In other words, grieve over your sin. Don't be numb to it. Grieve over it. And ask the Lord's help to put it away, to put it to death so that you can live for him. In other words, hear the Lord 
and hear him out of deep reverential fear and love of him. Hear God because you hear because you fear God. Hear God because you fear God and learn to do what he says. Be teachable in all of the things of godly wisdom. Understand the grave nature of your sin, especially as a follower of Jesus Christ. Be able to receive even a bold critique like James just gave us. And be, be uh, changeable, be teachable, be, be changed and renewed by those critiques. So that in turn, you end up doing godliness all over the place. Because that, after all, is one of the gracious consequences of Christ dying on the cross for us that we might learn godliness in order to bring glory to him as his faithful followers. Amen.